So I believe this is where we where we were. Um, I have it uh, marked as the paragraph that starts. Yeah, that's exactly where I am, see? More or less. Right. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Okay, we're in the fourth parak. We're close to the close to the end, but not quite. More than halfway through, I think. That we learned that <clears throat> you should aim for the middle path of action and not leave it to one of the extremes. Unless you're correcting, in other words, healing meaning unless you're correcting for a problem. When you have to go to the opposite extreme. So if the person, uh, if the person uh, experiences some imbalance uh, physically, so he's not going to wait until the situation, well, some people do, but Ideally, he wouldn't wait until the situation becomes so terrible that it's an extreme situation. Also, if he knows that a certain limb of his is weak, so he's going to protect it and he's going to stay away from things that could cause it to uh, be damaged. And he's going to focus on, he's going to focus on what will help that uh, that limb until it becomes healthy, or to prevent further weakness. So, so he's saying like the way that a person stays aware of their body, um, the condition of their body, the balance in their body, and the uh, and the limbs of their body, and in staying aware, if he notices some disorder, some even a mild uh, mild issue. Will address the issue proactively. He seems like he's describing what should be done, not necessarily what always is done, because people don't always necessarily do that, but that's what you're supposed to do. So the perfected person, he should always be mindful of his midot. He has to measure his actions and analyze the character of his soul every day. <laughs> he says you don't want to, if he notices a certain leaning in an extreme direction, not to, allow, to, to quickly correct it and not allow it to become embedded, not allow it to become uh, uh, instilled in his character from from hab- habituation. He should also be mindful of the the midot in which he's def- deficient. Uh, he should, if he sees that he already has a midah that is deficient, so he should try to cure it as soon as he can. Because every person has. Uh, Failing, meaning every person is going to have their limitations and their deficiencies, and so it's important for uh, for a person to be aware of them and to correct them, uh, so to speak. Uh, you know, to correct them. Uh, 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 you know, to be proactive. I guess is the word. 
And this is similar, by the way, to exactly what uh, in Mesilad Yisharim, pretty much all of the books of Midot say the same thing. Um, you know, the, uh, the Mesilad Yisharim has the same exact emphasis in the beginning. I'm sure you guys have come across it and learned it at least some, you know, at least in passing. Uh, it's actually a good sefer to learn and to know, uh, but it's, uh, you can read it multiple times and gain from it. But it's uh, one of the main things that he emphasizes in the beginning and also, you know, uh, Rabbeinu Yonah in his book on uh, Midot, also uh, in Shari Tshuva, his book on, uh, on, uh, uh, on Tshuva, he talks about it also, the constant vigilance in terms of assessment of character and, um, and so on. So, the, uh, so this is definitely one of the elements of development that the person is constantly vigilant in awareness of where they stand and what they need to work on. It says it's very uh, difficult and it's very remote that, uh, that a person would, fi- would be found who by nature has meaning a person who has all of the virtues to find them in nature is extremely rare. To find a person uh, who is uh, naturally born with all of the virtues of the character and of the intellect. Because remember that virtue just means that a person functions at the highest level, right? In other words, that they're not dragged down by elements of their personality that make them operate in a non optimal way because the definition of bad midot is that the person is driven by an inner tendency and is not operating in a rational way that's in accordance with the reality with objective reality as his mind could see it the intellect also has virtues and vices meaning when it's for, when it's functioning at its optim, in its optimal manner versus when it's functioning in a suboptimal manner in terms of its activities. Virtue is when, with regard to the person's emotions and with regard to the person's regulation of their behavior, are they acting and, uh, and responding to the world in a way that's optimal, right? That's, that's really what, what it means. So someone who in every area is naturally, uh, has natural tendencies that are coordinated with what's good, or lend themselves to what's good, is extremely rare, okay? So uh, you find that the, uh, in the Nevi'im, we find this uh, very clear. That's from Iov, that uh, Hashem doesn't trust his own servants, and, he, and he, he casts aspersions, so to speak, on his angels, meaning even those who are the perfected individuals have defects. Also from uh, Iov, how can a, human, a mortal be justified with God, and how could one born of a woman be found uh, worthy, right? So, Ushlomo alav shalom amar stam, ki adam en tzadik ba'aretz asher yasetov v'lo yecheta. And Shlomo HaMelech said it straight out, there's no person in the world that you're going to find who's a tzadik, who does good and never makes a mistake, right? So meaning to say that the person should never feel that they're cruising in the area. The, the point is that you could say, you could assume that, oh, 
the work comes to an end, that you achieve a certain level of perfection or development and then the work comes to an end and you can go on autopilot and you no longer have to engage in this assessment of the self. But like I mentioned, Mesilat Yisharim says, and Rabbeinu Yonan Sharei Tshuva says, and the Rambam you know, emphasizes here, that it's a constant vigilance in terms of maintaining the balance of the character and the, the emotions and... Uh, and without that constant vigilance, a person will fall into, it'll, it might creep up slowly, but will fall into um, behavior that is uh, non-optimal, the, the, into one of the extremes, meaning into an, it'll end up in a place where the emotions rather than the mind uh, are giving shape to his character or giving shape to the way that he thinks about the world, uh, responds to the world. And only with a constant awareness of the, uh, you know, and regulation of the character and the habits, really, because it emerges from habits, um, the way that the character, and this, this is one of the things that the Rambam emphasized before, but also uh, in, in Mishneh Torah makes a big deal out of it too, in Hilchot Teot, that character is cultivated by action, which means that, it's, that knowing that something is right doesn't, is not as effective as putting it into practice. The more that a person puts it into practice, it becomes their nature to do it. Meaning in the beginning, there's going to be a resistance, but eventually it becomes their nature. And then what's natural to you and what's habitual to you is what's familiar to you and what's automatic for you. So, but the problem is that just like the, uh, you know, the bullseye, to hit a bullseye is a lot harder than to hit anywhere else on the, uh, you know, to, to, to miss it is a lot easier than to hit it. So if we're talking about precision, so always finding the precise balance is much harder than, being lean, than leaning to one of the extremes. Because the area of error is much, much greater than the area of, uh, of being correct. Just like the area of right answers, the, you know, the field of right answers on a, on a problem is a lot less than the field of wrong answers. There's a lot more potential wrong answers to a question than right answers. So... In the same way, when it comes to character, there's a uh, maintaining, hit, hitting the bullseye is a constant challenge. And even at Sadiq, even Ba'avadav and Bimalachav, Hashem is saying, you know, He doesn't trust them, meaning to say that even they have, even they have to engage in a constant diligence in order to uh, maintain their living in accordance with the right principles and not being drawn into one or the other uh, extreme in different areas of virtue. Or different areas of uh, of behavior or emotional uh, uh, regulation, meaning in terms of their their character being governed by their mind, it's a constant battle. Okay, and now he's going to come to one of his most fam- one of the most famous uh, parts of the Shmona Parkim. Then Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the greatest prophet early of all the early and late prophets, Kvar Amar Ya'an that Hashem said, you didn't trust me or, uh, you know, to sanctify me. All of the sins that Moshe Rabbeinu is, you know, all the different ways that the Torah describes the sin of Moshe Rabbeinu, um, that you were not faithful to me, right? really means you were not faithful to me or loyal to me, right? Uh, or that you, you rebelled against my word in you didn't sanctify me in so this is in next week's parasha here in Israel. I guess it's two weeks ahead of you in, uh, in America. Um, 
זה כולו וחטאו עליו השלום, הוא שנתן לצד אחד מן הקצוות ממעלה ממעלות עמידות, והוא הסבלנות, כאשר נעתה לצד הרגזנות בעומו שמעון האמורים. So this is the Rambam's interpretation, it's pretty famous, that there's a bunch of different interpretations of the chet of Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Everyone knows. The, the Abarbanel counts a ton of them, and then the Orachayim counts like even more, and they make, you know, And then each one after counting a dozen or 20, then gives their own, you know, so it's, uh, so somebody made a joke that, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu did one sin, but by now he's already, according to the Farshim, he's done like 30, 40 sins, you know, because he came up with so many different uh, explanations of what he did wrong. So the thing is, he's saying that it was a defective character, that he got angry. This is the famous interpretation of the Ramban. There are other interpretations. There's the Ramban who says that it's because he said, Uh, they said, Will we bring you water from the rock? Meaning instead of saying, will Hashem bring it? You know, uh, or hitting the rock, of course, according to Rashi, uh, hitting it twice. Uh, you know, all of the different interpretations, really they do, so, I, I think, my, my feeling is that, in a way, you could argue that they all ultimately boil down to what the Rambam is saying. Because they all boil down to, in the moment, he deviated from God's instructions because he was overwhelmed by something. He wasn't, he wasn't governing his behavior by the will of God. Some other factor got in. Whether it was, uh, you know, whether you can just call it anger or you can call it, uh, he misspoke or he overcompensated with hitting the rock or he wasn't supposed to hit it at all. Whatever it was, he deviated from God's instructions. And that means that something of himself Uh, interfered with his adherence to God's command, right? That's, that's what it, so in a way, everyone is kind of saying the same thing, okay? But the Rambam is the one who explicitly connects it to ma'alot amidot, that he wasn't patient. He, he tilted to the side of anger. And he said, shim'una amorim. So the Rambam says that the chet of Moshe Rabbeinu was basically name-calling, meaning he got angry and he said, listen, you rebels, You know, for the first time he called them names. He's never called them a name before, right? That shows a certain amount of, uh, you know, him getting, taking things personally and, uh, and, and operating in a way that we've never seen him operate before, which is, you know, taking out his anger and his aggression on the people in a way that sounds uh, beneath the level of Moshe Rabbeinu. Let's put it that way. You know, it's like a teacher call, starts calling the students names is different than the teacher disciplining the students. The teacher disciplines the students, we expect that. Maybe they have, sometimes they might have even very high standards and they discipline the students and they, they communicate their uh, demands and their, you know, they enforce them and so on. But calling them names already seems like a level of, you know, going down to a, a beneath the dignity of what you expect from a teacher, right? I think that's pretty accurate. So the fact that he called them Shim Onahamorim, he started calling them names instead of just saying, uh, instead of reprimanding them for their action, uh, was the uh, failure according to, uh, according to the Rambam. Dikdik Alav, okay, we got somebody else finally has joined us, right? So Dikdik Alav, Hashem, Shia Adam Kamo Koes Lifne Adat Yisrael, Bemakom Sheinroi Boakas that Hashem held him accountable because he got angry in front of the Jewish people for something that wasn't uh, justified. 
וכיוצא בזה, בדין האיש ההוא, הוא חילול השם. And similarly with this person, meaning Moshe Rabbeinu, it was a matter of desecrating God's name. מפני שתנועותיו כולם, ומתנועותיו כולם ומדבריו היו למדים והיו מקווים להגיע בהם על הצלחת העולם הזה והעולם הבא. When Moshe Rabbeinu fails in a matter of character, as the mentor of, the, of Am Yisrael, so he's not just affecting his own perfection, he's affecting the perfection of everybody who looks to him as a role model for this world and the next world. How can anger, which is such a bad action, uh, be seen, associated with Moshe Rabbeinu, it can only come from a bad character of the, character, of the dispositions of the soul. So, um, so far, he's really giving, giving you what seemed to be more than one, more than one uh, problem that he's raising, right? And this is the interesting thing about the way that he's, he's formulating, because it doesn't sound like only one issue. First, he said, how can a person on his level get angry in a situation where anger is not justified? And moreover, there's a chilul Hashem, because from his, uh, from every action and every word of Moshe Rabbeinu, he's like a Rebbe, you know, like the, you have these, you know, every action that the Rebbe does, the, the students that, that see him as a mentor, they could be learning from it. So therefore, his obligation and responsibility to, be, to comport himself in an appropriate manner is way beyond what a normal person is expected, because... They are the, uh, they're supposed to be setting the standard for everyone else. So if this person behaves in a way that's beneath what, we, uh, what, what is appropriate, so that's going to set the tone for everyone. Just like all the jokes about the Rebbe, you know, so they have jokes about the Rebbe that goes to the mikveh, that the students want to go, want to know whether he cuts his nails before the mikveh or after the mikveh. You know, they have all these jokes like that. And then, you know, one day the... They decided, they, they had an argument that before the mikveh, after the mikveh, and then one day they went to the Rebbe and they said, you know, Rebbe, they, they went and watched him and they saw that he cut his nails after the mikveh. So they said, Rebbe, why do you cut your nails after the mikveh? What does it mean? What, why, we were, we've been arguing, you know, before the mikveh, after the mikveh, why do you do it after? He said, because it's softer after the mikveh, you know, that's why. You know, it's like all these jokes like that, they, but there's a truth to it, meaning every action, or like there's the other one about the Hasidish Rebbe, that these are not true, but I don't think, but there's a story about, you know, they had a communal lighting of the Chanukah, of the Chanukiah, and the Rebbe, there was, a, there was somebody left a, a broom leaning against the table in front of the Chanukiah. So the Rebbe moved the broom out of the way because he needed to light the Chanukiah, but he said to all the assembled Hasidim, you know, this is not a part of the Hadlakat Nerot of Chanukah. I'm just, I'm just moving the broom, right? So the next year, all the Hasidim in their homes put a broom in front of the Chanukiah and said, this is not a part of the lighting of the Chanukiah and moved the broom. Meaning, that's, you know, it's just trying to make fun that they, that they imitate. But, but there's a truth to it that there's a tendency to uh, imitate the, the uh, mentor, to imitate the, uh, and therefore the actions that he takes are going to have an impact. And the Rambam talks about it in, uh, uh, elsewhere. Like, I, I, in, in, uh, first of all, in the, in the, uh, when he talks about Chilul Hashem and Kiddush Hashem, he talks about it in, uh, hold on. 
towards the end, where he says, um, Right, this is in Hilchot Yisodei Torah. I'm sure you all have read it a million times, right? That there are things that are included in Chilul Hashem, such as where a person is, who is a tzaddik, who is looked up to, engages in behaviors that uh, people talk about behind his back. Even though it might not be a sin, like he takes money and he never pays it back, he, he, whatever, things like that. Or he doesn't speak nicely. He's yelling and screaming all the time. He doesn't receive them with a positive uh, attitude and so on. He says, I'm skipping a lot, but he's involved in arguments with people all the time and things like that. Okay? It depends on how great the Chacham is. And, and similarly, if the Chacham is very particular with himself, he gets along with people, he speaks nicely to people, and so on. He receives them positively. He takes insults, but he never gives it back. Okay? He respects even the people who treat him not so respectfully. He doesn't cheat anybody, etc. And he and they see him learning Torah all the time, wearing tzitzit, tefillin, doing everything. Lifnim mishurat adin, so etc. etc. I'm skipping a lot, but right then it says a kol mekalsinoto veoavinoto umitavim lemaasav. Everybody praises him and loves him and desires to uh, imitate his ways. Hari zekidushet Hashem. That's called kiddush Hashem, right? So. That's, so what the Rambam is alluding to here is that the reason why it's Chilul Hashem is because it showed a, that, that part of the role of the Chacham is to be an example that other people learn from and that other people emulate and are drawn to. And if they see negative character, it's gonna, either they're going to learn the wrong thing or they're going to be repulsed by the... Uh, the demeanor of the Chacham and therefore not, not uh, follow after his ways, not want to emulate him, right? They're going to end up, and this is what happens. This is a phenomenon that happens, that basically, uh, that when people see in a certain Chacham failings of character, they don't want to learn from them anymore because then they end up judging. The, they, don't, they need to see the Chacham as somebody who's above reproach, at least from their perspective. That doesn't mean... He's actually above reproach from his own perspective. Beno Levin, Nakadosh Baruch he has plenty to work on and he knows it, but the moment that the people become aware of those things, they, it changes the calculus of how they relate to him. I uh, think that's a big thing. Is that a shortcoming, sorry, is that a shortcoming of the people? Meaning ideally, um, should that not divert you away from that? How does that... Um, it in a and you know you have to operate in the real world. You know it's uh, it's unfortunately a reality that we we don't um, we don't necessarily so easily. I mean, uh, let's put it this way: learning happens from a relationship that you have with another person. That's why in the laws of Kibud Talmidei Chachamim are in the laws of Talmud Torah and the Rambam. 
They're not a separate. They're not a separate area of halacha. The, the 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 idea that the that the students respect the teacher and the teacher is supposed to respect the students also in a certain way. Um, that's in Hilchot Talmud Torah. Because the through the relationship is how uh, is how uh, the learning process advances. So if the uh, if the chacham is a defective person, then um, then it's going to affect the learning process. And whether that should be otherwise, meaning okay, if he if the if the chacham wrote a book, should I not read the book because this chacham had uh, character flaw? Maybe you could argue that it wouldn't affect it so much, but I think it would definitely affect the relationship people would have. And you see that that happens all the time. You hear about, oh, such and such rabbi is, you know, he's a very difficult person. You know, this, this teacher is very angry. This, this one is very, you know, this. You know, you hear people sort of like stereotyping their character. And as soon as they do that, uh, that removes the ability of the chacham to have, or I wouldn't say it removes, it diminish it substantially diminishes the ability of that Talmud Chacham to have an impact on the people around him because they're already seeing him through a different prism. Meaning if this Chacham can't control his own appetites and he's running after women all the time, so then why why should I uh, you know or if this Chacham can't control his own midot in other ways, so uh, they're they're going to see him as somebody who is uh, not worthy of their respect. And then, ideally, if you're able to recognize that this teacher has certain faults that lead to certain negative behaviors, you're supposed to be able to separate that from he has a good point, has a good point, regardless of whether the behavior reflects that or not. Well, yeah, I mean, in in the realm of ideas, you can't. You can't throw out the truth of an idea because the person who said it was a jerk or something like that, you know. It doesn't make the idea any less true. <clears throat> but to have a relationship, this is where the issue of like Rebbe Meir and uh, an Acher really comes in because to what ex- meaning a relationship of Talmud and mentor relationship is different than a relationship of, uh, is different than then learning certain ideas that you hear a certain idea that's true. You can't reject it because of, uh, because of the person that, that formulated the idea. That would be, that would be silly. So you see that, the, that even Elisha ben Avuya is mentioned in Pirkei Avot. They didn't expunge his teachings from Pirkei Avot. And they even collected the divrei Torah that he told to Rebbe Meir in the Gemara. Right, so meaning, they didn't reject his ideas. They just said that they didn't endorse being a uh, a talmid of, of 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 a person like that. Okay, so like the at the Rambam also says elsewhere. He says, "Keshem shachacham nikar bechuchmato uvdeotav vumuvdal ben misharaam kach tzorich shi nikar b'maasav b'maachalo uvemashkeu." Meaning the Chacham is expected to manifest his being a Chacham in all the realms of his, of his activity, um, the way he eats, the way he drinks, the way he uh, interacts with people, the way he presents himself. He shouldn't be a glutton, he shouldn't be yelling and screaming all the time. This is in Perk Chamishi of Hilchot Deot. 
Okay, so, um, and he goes on with a lot of it. Okay, how he manages his life and so on. And then at the end, he says, uh, And then he talks about the Kiddush Hashem element again. Right, so there's two things. One, he, he mentions it in Hilchot Deot and he mentions it in, uh, in, uh, in Hilchot Kiddush Hashem. Which is interesting, meaning just like here, he seems like he's separated. It just occurred to me now. I never thought about it before, but just like right here, he's um, separating it into two things. Like he mentions that it's bad character, and then he mentions the idea of Chilul Hashem. And similarly, he says both of those things in Hilchot Deot and in Hilchot Yisudayat In both cases, he ends by mentioning the Kiddush Hashem factor, but uh, from different angles. In one case, he's talking about the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem versus Chilul Hashem. And in the other case, he's talking about, uh, he's talking mainly about Hilchot Deot, but, uh, but he also mentions the Kiddush Hashem uh, factor at the end. So meaning the Chacham can't separate his public persona from his, um, from uh, the, the realm of Kiddush and Chilul Hashem, Jewish people in general have to be worried about Chilul Hashem and Kiddush Hashem in, in the generalities, right? In terms of the, the proper behavior befitting a Jew and so on. A, 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 a Chacham has a higher standard. He's expected that the values of Torah will manifest themselves more clearly in the way he lives his life, you know? Then in, more into the, into the details of his character and so on. And we know that. You just have to think about it. You could, don't say any names, but you, know, you could definitely think of like, oh yeah, that rabbi, he's only into money. Everybody knows he's only, he really is he's, he's into money. You know? Or that rabbi he has a very sensitive, uh, a very sensitive, if you insult him, you know, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll hate you and he'll be there. You know, there's all kinds of things that you hear people say about different rabbis. And then you know, as soon as they start to say that, it belittles them in the mind of the people. And they, you know, they, they're not able now to, uh, to have that kind of relationship. So it's a very complicated thing. So, okay, so first of all, the Ram, so the, first of all, he says that he failed in terms of his character uh, by being angry in a situation that it wasn't appropriate. And it was also Chilul Hashem because the people are following his, uh, you know, are e- emulating him hypothetically, and he's going to be, uh, he's giving a bad example. He says, what does it mean that he rebelled against my word, that, I, that Moshe Rabbein rebelled against my word? Because he wasn't speaking with a group of people who are fools or have no perfection at all. of Alim Anashim, like it says in the Midrashim, that even the maidservant at, at, at Yamsuf saw more than, than the Navi Yecheskel, meaning these people were on very high level. And uh, so this is a different thing. In other words, it's not just that they would be impacted, like, and this is maybe to Daniel's point a little bit, Meaning it's not just that they would be impacted like the Hamon Am will be like, oh, you know, that guy is a jerk or this guy is that, you know, they'll put him in a category. Uh, oh, that guy cares about money or that guy cares about the, whatever it is. Not like that. 
but that they're going to analyze the deeds of Moshe Rabbeinu more deeply because they're on a very high level. So in that way, it's even worse. Right? So what does that mean? So he's taking it even further, which is interesting, okay? It's not only that Moshe Rabbeinu, and this is like a big, this is a much further level, meaning not only that they, it would be uh, a bad manifestation of character and a lack of control of his emotions of Moshe Rabbeinu, that's bad, okay? And that therefore people would see, um, a, like what's the, the question is, what's the difference between what it said before? And what he says now, it sounds like the same thing, meaning they're, they're looking to him and they're emulating him. Uh, so why, what, what, what is he adding here? He's adding something. To me, adding here that before he was talking about how the people witnessing his anger, then he would become belittled in their eyes and then he wouldn't be as good a role model to learn from in the future. But here he's saying they wouldn't interpret his anger as a departure from his character. They would interpret his anger as an actual representation of the way God feels. Right. So to speak. Yeah. So right, so that it's it's a it's a further defect. It almost seems like uh, almost contradictory, because uh, because if there's because in the beginning he's saying that no, they would see it as a defect, and therefore, um, uh, uh, but uh, and they would see it as a bad character. Right. That's what it said above. Meaning that since they, they and yet this would be a, this would posel him basically as a, as a mentor because they would see that he wasn't really worthy of the respect of, he wasn't above reproach like they thought. He was also able to be a victim of his own emotions and his own, Distortions of character, you know. So that's uh, that would be one. That's one thing. But then the fact that he said that no, it's there's a further there's a further element here, which is that they learned their understanding of darche Hashem from the responses of Moshe Rabbeinu and his actions. He wasn't just a regular teacher. He wasn't just a regular. Uh, mentor, but he was someone that uh, that his um, that they were learning and inferring from his responses and his behaviors what the will of God was. See, so it's it's a little bit of a high, an even higher level than uh, than the, the typical uh, mentor uh, standard. Because and and therefore what therefore. In this case, there was no indication. If you look at the part of what's uh, striking about the story 
is that you're already that you're dealing with a situation in which there's no indication from Hashem's side that there's anything wrong in what the people are asking. And really what it seems is that it's an outgrowth of the frustration that Moshe Rabbeinu has with the people over many years of dealing with their resistances and their different, uh, you know, and their various trouble that they've given him over the years. And so he's responding to that uh, emotionally. He's not responding to it intellectually. I mean, he's not seeing that the people before him are a new generation and are, uh, you know, have, have uh, uh, you know, are, are moving in a different direction and need to be given their own uh, opportunity to grow and to develop. Instead, he's seeing it through the prism of, you know, being jaded after all the years of leading the Jewish people through the Midbar and all the frustrations that, that, that's come along with that. And so he's, he's taking it out on them, right? So the problem is twofold. The problem is, number one, insofar as the anger itself as an element of character, and number two, that uh, the people are going to perceive it as an indication that God thinks that it's not appropriate to ask, ask for water. Okay? So, of course, the question is, why, who, like, why is that so important that the people should not think that God is angry with them for asking for water, that therefore Moshe Rabbeinu should have such a severe punishment, Right? But let's just finish what he says here. Right? Well, we, we sort of departed from the point of the chapter, but we, we managed to deal with something that's one of the, uh, that many people have spoken about, which is what is the chet of Moshe Rabbeinu? You could check out what other people have said, what we've said, what the truth is will show its way, right? So I think that means he was pretty confident that he had the right answer. But the, but the, the question is, why is it so significant that they not misinterpret that what Hashem's thoughts were about asking for water? I mean, why is that... Uh, why is that so earth shattering? This doesn't seem to, it would be like if they would interpret that, you know, uh, some, something about Avodazoa being okay or something about, you know, uh, I don't know, some, something that was really earth shattering in its implications, far reaching implications about their life uh, that they, um, you know, they misinterpreted that so fine. But they, so they thought that God didn't, you know, that God was upset that they asked for water. Okay, so they thought that God was upset that they asked for water. It wasn't true. Afterwards, Moshe Rabbeinu could say, no, I just got a little bit frustrated and Hashem wasn't angry about the water. Okay, so, so what's the problem? Why is, it, why is it such a big deal? It seems like a minor detail um, to, to worry, to, be, to make such a big deal out of it. I mean, I don't get it. What do you think? Maybe you don't want a religion predicated on, you know, self-depravity where even water is something that, uh, if the, I don't know, um, like beg for, like it's such a basic human need that, uh, that they shouldn't have been punished for asking. Right. So what would, I agree. Yeah. That sounds like that's what he's trying to say. Meaning that they were making a legitimate request. They needed water. Right? Because it was after the death of Miriam, so you know the Midrashim say they didn't have water and all, all that. So they made a legitimate request asking for water. There wasn't a reason for that to be responded to with such uh, force, 
right? With uh, for it to be a cause of anger, because they were asking for something legitimate, right? But the question is, and and I, I agree, you know, they they shouldn't think that to ask for that should be something that there's something wrong about asking for that, right? But I what? Asked, yeah. I mean, they've, they've complained so many times. Right, but this is a new generation, though, more or less. It's not even so many times. It's uh, 10 times over 40 years. That's, uh, that's once every four years. That's not even that bad. <laughs> and there seems to be less of a focus. 38 of the years, we don't really know what happened during the time. We only hear like the first year and a half and the last year. So who knows what happened in the middle? So this is the first time this, gen- this generation complained? It seems like it. This generation, and this is one of the things that they point out about the text, there's not the usual indications of Hashem being upset are not there. And they're asking to get into Israel faster. They said, you didn't bring us to, you know, the, 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 uh, the land of Israel. Like, there's, this is not Mekom Zera. Meaning, they were saying, why don't you just bring us to Eretz Israel already? They weren't saying "Nitna Rosh Venashuva Mitzrayma." Yeah, it was a, it was a different attitude. They weren't. They, they didn't know Mitzrayim anymore. Like that. That was. So that what, was what, what exactly is the question? The question is why. I'm just why wondering not? why this is so significant. Meaning that in the, you can look at this as a a relatively small issue. Okay, so. He gave the impression that uh, Hashem was angry about them asking for water, but wasn't he wasn't actually angry about them asking for water. It was okay to ask for water. It was Moshe Rabbeinu who was the one that was, um, you know, angry because he got frustrated. So they're going to derive from that that, oh, if not for the fact that Hashem was angry that we asked for water, then Moshe Rabbeinu would not be angry. But we don't find that actually that Hashem was actually angry. So that means that, meaning they're giving Moshe Rabbeinu the ultimate benefit of the doubt. They're giving Moshe Rabbeinu uh, the benefit of the doubt that the that he only would have been upset if Hashem indicated that there was something wrong with this, right? Right. So uh, so therefore it would be it it would be wrong. It would be a, the wrong messaging on the side of Moshe Rabbeinu. I can't get, I think I got confused with one, one point you mentioned. When did we have the jump from the beginning of the 40 years? I thought we didn't pass the jump from the beginning of the 40 years till the end. I thought we're still... This is already in Parashat Chukat. So like when Miriam dies and then right after that Aaron dies, they died in the last uh, time. Oh, yeah. oh. I'm getting confused between where we are. You're in Parashat Chukat, you're already towards the... Uh, Right. Towards the end of it. Towards the end of the uh, Torah already. Of the time period. I remember yeah. Rabbi Bitton saying something on this uh, to the nature of how it, it, you know, Moshe was doing the same thing he did the first time with the water, how he hit it, and how this is really teaching us that he, it's a new generation, and maybe he's not the best leader for this new generation. Right. Hinting to the fact that you have to do it differently and we need a new leader. Right. Yeah, I agree. I've heard that before too, that, uh, you know, it's mainly that he's out of touch with the fact that he's, he's, it's like when you carry baggage from a, 
from past traumatic experiences into a new situation and you don't see the new situation. You see a repeat of the old situation. So you're like, you have a, uh, you have like, you're a little bit trigger happy to get upset because you've been through so much, even though what you're dealing with now, it would be like a guy who taught in the inner city schools for like 40 years and then he comes to some prep school. I don't know. And so then the slightest, the slightest misbehavior, he's going to, you know, impose draconian disciplinary measures because, you know, that's what he, that that triggers him from, you know, past experiences to, uh, you know, to react like that. That's the, um, that's the, uh, you know, that would be similar to this. In other words, he's not adapting his leadership and his teaching to, uh, to the needs of the new generation. I agree, but the, but what I but there seem there definitely seem to be two elements. One element is the first element about the the implication or the concern that um, that the response itself indicates something about the character. Meaning the two things that the Rambam is is attributing to Moshe Rabbeinu are opposites. Because in the beginning he says that this is mitchunot nefesh from the this is really one of the bad characters of the of the nefesh and the people look up to him and they want to they want to emulate him and uh, and it would be it, it's bad for them to see in him defects of the soul because he's a person that they're emulating either they're going to emulate his bad uh, character or they're going to be disengaged from him because of, of his bad character right that's more in the re- realm of the of the character. But then he gets to the separate thing, which is why does it say Maritempi? Why does it say that you violated my word, meaning you misrepresented me? You misrepresented me. Right? You went against my word. That's a different element. In other words, it seems like there's two elements. And it could be that they're not, um, that not everyone, meaning that, that which elements would have an impact would also depend on the recipient in this case, meaning there's, there's two things. The main point is that he deviated from the proper, what is, what is virtue or what is perfected character? It means responding to the situation as, it objectively, uh, as what's objectively necessary. That's what we said before, meaning the bad deot are always that what's determining your character is something within you. And the, good, and the good path, the balanced path, is the path that responds to the external objective reality and what the needs of the objective reality, demands of the objective reality are. In this case, the objective reality is what the will of God, there's two objective realities actually. And maybe that's the point. Maybe now that I'm talking through it, it's becoming clearer, right? There's two objective realities. One is the objective reality of the behavior of the people in front of him, that he's reacting excessively to their, uh, to their request, meaning from his emotional side. And the other objective reality that he has to contend with is the objective reality of what the will of God is in that situation. Maybe that's why he's bringing these two, these two things. I'm just like talking it through, thinking it through, but maybe that's what it is. In other words, given that proper character, proper conduct is what is attuned to objective reality and not a function of internal compulsion, so when it comes, so there's really two different frameworks that we're looking at. We're looking at the framework of the Talmudim here and what, what really, what their behavior warrants in terms of a response. And we're looking at, the, at God's will um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, what God's will is and intention is in, in instructing Moshe Rabbeinu the way that he does.
Meaning what Hashem wanted Moshe Rabbeinu to show the people is that it's legitimate to ask for water in order to survive because Hashem is noten lechem lechol basaki leolam chasdo and he's poteach at yedecha umaspia lechol chayaratzon and they're turning to Hashem for water and, uh, and the fact that they are turning and yearn, they're yearning to uh, make it to the promised land and they are... Uh, and they're identifying, by the way, in the text as the people of Hashem. Why did you bring the people of Hashem to this place? Right? Meaning they, their identity has matured and they're they seeing... everything right. What? They, they, the people are doing everything right. They're right. All, all identifying as Hashem's people. They're asking for what's proper. They're, they're turning to Hashem when they are in, in need. All things that are proper and they're being reprimanded for it. Right. Exactly. So... Uh, so it sounds like the question. What did you say? So that answer that answers one of the, one of the questions. Why would Hashem be upset with, uh, with Moshe not representing him properly? Right, right. He's teaching them the wrong thing. Right. There was there there was no there was no problem with what they did. In fact, the opposite. He should have encouraged it. Right. They, there was a little edge to the way that they said it. I mean, you know, which is what triggered him, obviously. And then how he also said in the pasuk how how he calls them Shimona Hamorim, which is what what her mom says over here, and then right. Hashem says it as Lohemantem Bilahakdisheni, meaning it's 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 very apparent. Both both points are very clear in the out right. of the text. Right, that the two elements are there. There's the he anger element, wrong. and then there's yeah, the... Yeah, he's angry, the way he responded, and then also Hashem is saying, you should have sanctified me. Right. Right. Uh, how, are we, how is this... Um, how are we framing this in a different way than the complaints of the earlier generation? Meaning, if the earlier generation was also in certain instances complaining about seemingly basic necessities like food, is it just that in that generation there's also coupled the desire to return to Mitzrayim and I guess off, they're off the path of what the goal is? Because if we're just judging the complaint of water versus meat or food, one of them doesn't really have more merit or less merit than the other. Right. So one element of it is that their complaints were always directed at Moshe Rabbeinu as an individual. So you see that he always would say, why are you complaining to me? Complain to Hashem. Right? Well, not Hashem, but you know, Hashem is the one who's going to do it. Why are you complaining about Aaron? Don't complain about, you know, your complaint is not against Aaron, it's against Hashem. Lo aleinu tlunotechem ki al Hashem. Right? Well, you know, the, the people asked for bread. He said, Hashem is going to give it to you. Hashem has heard your complaints. Hashem is going to give it to you. So meaning part of their process of maturation is not focusing on the human provision of their needs, like the way that they had it in Egypt, the infantile, uh, uh, you know, uh, dependency of Egypt was just transferred onto Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron as the new, you know, parents that were providing them with what they needed. So they were turning you know, turning to them. And so Hashem, so Moshe Rabbeinu's job always is to direct them to God and say, the complaint is not towards me, it's towards Hashem. You know, don't ask me, ask Hashem. Right. 
So the so so and and together, meaning coupled with that was well. If you are an impotent mommy and daddy, I'll go back to the very powerful Egypt. That you know, even though I was a slave, at least I knew where my next meal was coming from, and so on. So the so the, that was still part of their mentality. Here they're saying lo mekom verimon. We want to go into an environment where we can plant and and sow seeds and and reap. By harvest and eat and be comfortable and so on on our own. We want to be independent. In the meantime, you know, why have you brought the people of God to a place that they can't function? Meaning they're putting it in the, into the, uh, they're putting it into the framework of God's plan and they're putting it into the framework of their identity as Am Hashem. It's a totally different tone and a totally different implication than uh, the previous complaints. But Moshe Rabbeinu hears the buzzwords of the people complaining to him and it triggers him basically uh, based on his past experiences with the uh, very frustrating, obviously, previous generation and kind of a feeling of, oh my God, I'm going through this again, not again. You know, these people, are, they're going to continue the, the bad legacy of their, uh, of their ancestors and uh, be trouble and be challenging. But he wasn't seeing it for what it really was. So, whereas Hashem, who obviously did see for it for what it was, was giving him a, a very dispassionate instruction to provide them with the needs that they had. They came with a with a, a petition, and, and and it was answered without any sign of anything negative. In fact, it was a it was a good step in the right direction. So, instead of recognizing that, he he, he failed in that. But the the interesting aspect is that particularly in Moshe Rabbeinu, these two aspects of what virtue is, in other words, what character being the direction of the person's responses by, by intellect or by understanding as opposed to by emotion, in Moshe Rabbeinu, that because by intellect, in the case of Moshe Rabbeinu, means representing the Devar Hashem, not just his own personal flaws are exhibited here, but the message of God ends up getting clouded by, uh, you know, by the way that he's presenting it. And um, that really, that's always true, I think, in any Talmud Chacham. Meaning that, that's, that always can be true, but it's just especially extraordinarily true in the case of Moshe Rabbeinu because of who he was and also because of who the people were. So it was extraordinarily uh, true in this case. Okay, so the um, so yeah, this this is a the Rambam kind of puts it into the realm. You could say that well, you know, the Rambam kind of like simplifies the chid and just makes it about that he wasn't balanced and he got angry. But it's really very fundamental because what that means is that he allowed his uh, inner uh, emotional world to overcome his intellect. And in the case of Moshe Rabbeinu, that wasn't just a, that wasn't only a matter of uh, not recognizing who the people were and losing the confidence of the people in his character and losing you know or you know setting them a bad example of how to deal with frustration. It was a lot more than that. That could be true in any case of any mentor that it's a bad example of how to deal with frustration or that they will lose their credibility in the eyes of the uh, of the people. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you look. You all know certain rabbis, whatever, who are kind of cult, cult leader type rabbis, they can do anything bad, 
okay, let's say get angry, be aggressive and all that, their followers will say what they're doing is right. It's okay to be angry and aggressive. They're justified. We should go beat people up and be thugs, right? And then other people will say, no, this just shows that this guy's not a real rabbi. He, we shouldn't learn from him. We should distance ourselves from him because he's trouble. Okay? Those exact reactions are the ones that Moshe Rabbeinu could have precipitated by getting angry. Some people will say, oh, you know, being tough and being angry is, is good. They're going to emulate it or they're going to be turned off by it. Right? That's, but that is within the, that's in terms of the realm of, uh, of the relationship between the people and Moshe Rabbeinu. What about the relationship between the people and Hashem now? That Moshe Rabbeinu is supposed to be mediating and that's where uh, the Chilul Hashem element comes in uh, most prominently because now they think that, oh, God denies us the, uh, you know, our basic needs. This is the, there, there's something wrong with, uh, with us asking for our basic needs from God. So what, what, does that, you know, what does that mean? What does God expect of us? God expects us to be, not be living in the, in, in the natural world, not to have a need for water, not to, not to have parnasan, not to be able to survive or, or to struggle to survive in pain and suffering. That's what, that's what God wants, of, uh, wants from us. Right, so it's a again a denial of the body, basically. That that that's really what God expects. No, so it, it it's a distortion. But you could see how that the reason why I'm mentioning is that on the surface it sounds like a small thing. Oh, they they, they that Moshe Rabbeinu gave them the impression that God didn't want them to ask for water, right? But it's not just that. It means what kind of a God. Meaning, what kind of hashkacha is it that wouldn't provide for the basic needs of the, those who are following the Derech Hashem? So does that mean that a person to follow Derech Hashem it should expect to suffer? Should expect that, you know, that God is indifferent to or denies them uh, basic necessities? That says something about the hashkacha. It says something about how God runs the world that, and what he expects of his creatures. You know, it's like a uh, love deal, like in Islam or something, where it's like, deny yourself all the pleasures in this world, you get them in the next world. Or in Christianity, you know, the ultimate person is the person who denies themselves everything. Okay? So that belief about God is a distortion in understanding how God runs the world. It's very fundamental because it's about whether God provides for the basic necessities of his creatures whether it's legitimate to expect that from God or to request that from God, that he provide basic necessities to his creatures. It's not just a detail. Okay, so, so let's get to the end of the paragraph. Finally, So back to my point that when a person is measuring his actions all the time, and directing them to the center, he'll be on the highest level. And through this, he'll come close to God and he'll attain the goodness of God. This is the most perfect way in the way of serving God. This is what they said when they said that anybody who measures his paths, 
will have the merit of seeing the salvation of God. Right? It's really visam, right? That uh, a person who uh, who who uh, adjusts his way, meaning who who places his who, who lives properly, I will show him the uh, salvation of God. Visham is the drasha, meaning sham means to weigh. Vishuma hu ashur vasvara, meaning the measurement and the calculation. Vizawainyan, ashur pirash no bazaper kulo bishave, vizishur mashurinu, shatzuch bazainyan. So he's saying that this is the, the, the highest level through which a person uh, comes close to God and is able to obtain the goodness of God. Why is that? What, what does that have to do? All the, uh, up till now, all we talked about was uh, how it's really unhealthy to be leaning towards one way or the other way in terms of. Uh, extremes of character and behavior and a person should go in the middle. All of a sudden he's bringing in this piece of uh, uh, that, it, you, that you come close to God through doing it and you, and you receive goodness from God and you're going to have Yeshuat Elohim uh, because you uh, measure your paths. Well, what's, the, what's the reason for that? This seems like an extraneous extra piece that he's adding here that we didn't see this element before so much, right? But it's a, uh, what it means is that when a person is living, one of the principles really of, of Torah, one of the principles that you learn, especially from Mishlei, but from much of the Torah, is that a person who lives in line with the reality is the person who's going to be the most successful, and to the extent that a person is in the grips of one or another flaw in their character and their personality, they're not really living in accordance with the objective reality. And therefore they're going to come, they're gonna smash into the brick walls of reality at some point in their life and, be, and experience a lot of frustration. The person who is living in accordance with reality and doesn't allow the the uh, their personality or the uh, the various elements of their personality to overwhelm their mind in determining what is best, that person will end up experiencing the salvation of God. Meaning, if that person is going to be is going to be living at the highest level, like he says, and he's going to be close to God because what it means is that. He's going to look to the wisdom of God to determine how he should conduct himself. And therefore, he's going to be living in line with what's, what is objectively true and objectively appropriate, and it's going to lead him to great success. As opposed to the person who is, for one reason or another, is allowing, like when a person allows their instincts to govern their conduct, they're not really thinking about whether that is the you know what is the wisest and best and most productive and most uh, and most objectively warranted course of action to bring them closer to their success. There's, they're just allowing internal compulsion to make the decision for them. But when somebody lives like this, they're saved by God, meaning that because they're living in accordance with the wisdom of God, they're going to they're going to be saved by that, and they're going to be blessed by that. And that seems to connect very much so, even though he says, Vashuv le Kavanati, definitely seems to connect to the previous part about Moshe Rabbeinu. That, uh, that part of what Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to be teaching them was 
the importance of living in line with the objective reality, and he exhibited the opposite. Meaning he exhibited the opposite in terms of miscalculating the people. I mean, you could say it's, in one, it's sort of one and the same. You could again say it's one and the same, meaning that God's command should have instructed Moshe Rabbeinu to see the situation in a certain light, in a non-critical light. And instead of fully processing the mitzvah that God gave him and allowing that to shape the way that he perceived the behavior of the people, he instead allowed his emotions to color the way that he perceived the behavior of the people. And that, in turn, blurred his recognition of what God's message actually was. In that case. Why did that happen to Moshe? Because of old age? Because of (laughs) uh, too many years of leadership? Or just a momentary loss of... Uh, it's so hard to know. You know of, his, of his emotions. It's, it's very hard to know. Uh, why? Um, because, you know, you were not like anywhere near the level of his, of his development to be able to figure out exactly what might have gone wrong. But um, the way he describes it is what happened, not so much why. Uh, you know, what went wrong. We can attribute it to, you know, many, many years of challenges and uh, maybe the excitement of a few, sometimes it happens that and I'm not sure, but, you know, so it's similar to when he gets angry at the, uh, at the notice that he gets angry in other places and there's not as harsh of a consequence. Meaning when he gets angry about the, uh, uh, the Kohanim not eating the Korban, burning it instead of eating it, or uh, when he gets angry after Milchemet Midian that they kept the women alive. Okay, these don't affect him as much, even though it says in each case he forgot a halacha or he made a mistake about some halacha. The shechinah departed from him in that moment because he got angry, but it doesn't have the same impact because this was such a fundamental uh, transitional moment for the new generation and uh, such a fundamental lesson in hashkachat kadosh baruch that Hashem invited and welcomed their turning to him for uh, their basic needs and that that's part of the... uh, relationship between God and his creatures. It was so fundamental. So Moshe Rabbeinu has, has misspoken before or been you know, affected by anger before. In the cases before, it's because he has a certain ideal of how things are supposed to go. And when the ideal is contravened, so he responds with anger, which is usually what we do when we have certain expectations of how things are supposed to go and our expectations are contradicted. So for him, the day of the Chanukat Mishkan was supposed to go just so. It was supposed to be exactly according to plan and, and you know, reflecting uh, you know, the, the design that, that he envisioned and uh, didn't do that. And the, or in the case of Milchemet Midian, the same thing. And it seems like in each of these cases, you can infer that there was some personal frustration on his part. In other words, he took it personally, the failing. So in the case of the dedication of the Mishkan, you could say that, you know, this was kind of like the ultimate, this was the moment of moments, dedication of the Mishkan. That was the whole purpose of Yitzhak Mitzrayim was to establish, you know, and this was such an enormous, momentous occasion and it got messed up because they're not following the rules properly. A person who was totally dispassionate might not have gotten so angry. But he got upset because in a way he felt like this is my, 
this is my legacy. This is my, what, what I've worked for. This is what I've, you know, I, I've achieved this and I want it to be just perfect, you know? Or in the case of, you know, in the case of the Milchemet Midian, it was his last campaign that he was going to be doing, right? Hashem said to him, go fight against Midian. Afterwards, you're going to, you're going to die. So there was, there was an element in it that was needed to be like, just so needed to be, and and in both cases, it's righteous indignation. It's like you know, what about the uh, what about the the? How can you ruin the uh, avodav, the Beit Hamikdash? How can you not kill the women of Midian when they were the ones that seduced the people? In other words, this wasn't a war of conquest. It was a war of kedusha. It was a war of kedusha Hashem. It was nikmat Hashem Midian. How could you mess it up? So there's a righteous indignation over there, but it cloaks somewhat of a personal stake that he had in the success of the mission and that's why he got angry right so here too it's you know it seems like the idea is that he thought we're finally on the cusp of you know some breakthrough we finally have a new generation they're not going to do that nonsense anymore i've finally been able to feel that i succeeded in raising a generation in the in the in the wilderness over these 38 years that gets it and that you know isn't you know as like the previous generation, and what happens? Uh, they're, they're doing this again. You know, so you could you could imagine that in his mind it was a personal failure, and therefore a personal frustration, and he took it out on them. But you know, it's hard to get into the mind of Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, but just to describe that, based on the other cases in which, in every one of the cases, there was a legitimate reason for him to be distressed at a deviation from what he saw as what God's will was in the situation. But um, the, the response to it of be, being anger is where you see that there's a personal element because emotional anger wouldn't have come to the surface if it were a completely objective engagement with the reality in front of it. Meaning the fact, so that's why it says like, for example, in the case of... Uh, when Moshe Rabbeinu uh, came to the, you know, when it came to the burning of the korbanot instead of eating them, that he got angry and therefore he made a mistake in the halacha because he got angry, right? So there's a whole question over there. Wait a second. Um, how could you say that he, that he forgot the halacha because he got angry? The reason he got angry was because he misunderstood the halacha and he thought they were supposed to eat it. So, the, so actually the mistake about the halacha preceded the anger, not the other way around, Right? So uh, actually, there's a, very, there's a very fascinating Rashi on that where he says, um, she ba ka'as, ba taut, he says, right? In every other case, it says, she ka'as ta'a. Because he got angry, he, got, uh, he made a mistake. But there it says, she ka'as, ba taut, Rashi says. Since he came into... The framework of anger, he came into the framework of a mistake. Meaning, once you're taking things personally, you're, you're, you're liable to make a mistake. You're more liable to make a mistake. Even though the mistake technically happened beforehand, it happened because he had developed, a per, he, he, he took a personal stake in, the, in the, uh, the whole ceremony of the dedication of the Mishkan being perfect. And he had an idea of what it was supposed to be like. And, be, and, and, and the fact that he had a, he was no Davar, basically. He had a personal stake in it that affected the way that he saw things and, and he made a mistake as a result of it. 
Um, and or after the milchemet midyan that he forgot to tell them about tevilat kelim or hechsher kelim or whatever they needed to do with the things they brought back from midyan, and therefore Elazar Cohen had to fill in the gaps and what he neglected to mention to them. But what does that mean? It means that because he got he focused on the aspect which was the uh, the chilul Hashem and the kiddush Hashem aspect that you know the nikmat Hashem b'midyan. He didn't focus on all the other implications. He forgot about all the other implications afterwards um, because he was upset that they didn't complete the job. Now, again, you can, you can chalk that up to, well, he cared so much about the Chilul Hashem that occurred with Midian that he wanted it to be, you know, he wanted this war to be done uh, perfectly and uh, to, not to seem like a war of con- conquest, but to be very clearly a war of, of uh, Kiddush Hashem. Yet, uh, you know, the fact that he got upset about it reflects that he wasn't thinking about it totally objectively and therefore he didn't consider other halachic implications such as the Heksher Kelim and all the other things that, you know, Elazar Cohen had to come and mention. So, uh, you know, so here too, I think that it's reasonable to say that he felt that he had reached a certain, it's like when you feel like you've taught somebody, I'm sure it's happened with your kids, you know, you feel like finally you've gotten through to them about something and, and they're on the same page and then they ask something or say something that you realize they totally missed the point, right? They, they totally didn't get it, right? And so uh, this, is, this is what I think, I think something like that is what Moshe Rabbeinu was experiencing. And so because he was heavily invested in this new generation being different and he saw indications to the opposite. So instead of really processing what Hashem was telling him, he allowed his emotions to uh, get in the driver's seat and... Uh, and, uh, and, that, and that was it. You know, I'll, I'll end with this. It reminded me, you know, there's a very cute mashal from the Ben Ishchai that uh, it's not every day that we mention the Ben Ishchai and the Rambam and the same thing, but it's, uh, there's a, a story about a, a guy that's like a homeless guy who's walking along and he sees this wealthy guy on a horse. I don't know if you've heard this before. And then he, and he says, please, can I ride on your horse to, into the town, you know? And, uh, and the wealthy guy's like, okay. So the, but the poor guy says, can I sit in the front and hold the reins? Because, you know, it's uncomfortable for me in the back. I have, like, back problems. I have whatever problem with my legs. I need to sit in the front. He says, okay. So he lets him sit in the front. They come into the town. And then the poor guy's like, okay, get off my horse. So the rich guy's like, what do you mean, get off my horse? It's my horse. I'll let you ride on He's like, no, no, that's not true. I'm sitting in the front. I'm, this is my horse. I, I, I let you on the horse. And so they go to court you know, and the judge listens to the arguments. And then finally he says, you know, look, if you had been riding on the horse, if the poor guy had been riding on the horse, I would believe it wasn't his horse, but he was holding the reins of the horse. If he's holding the reins of the horse, that means it's his horse. Okay. And the mashal was basically allowing the instincts to take over. You know, it's one thing to, as long as the reason and the mind is guiding the instinct, it's okay to to, you have to balance and, and you have to satisfy the instincts and you have to satisfy bodily needs and you have to balance that with everything else. But once you put the instincts in the driver's seat that they're in control, now you're not going to be able to say that it's you anymore. Right? It's not you anymore that's really uh, directing the... They, they take over the horse, so to speak. It's a nice mashal to think about. Um, yeah. Think about it. Anyway, yeah. So that, that's from the Ben Ishchai. We finish the fourth paragraph. Yeah, so next we're going to get into the, the, the fifth where he kind of integrates this with the idea of kol, you know, that kol ma'asecha yu l'shem shamayim, basically. We'll see. All right? Uh, thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, Adam. Okay. Thank you, Have a great week. We'll see you next week.